Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 329 A Neuroscience of Enlightenment. We're joined this week by contemplative neuroscientist David Vago and philosopher practitioner Jake Davis to discuss their recent article on using neuroscience to investigate enlightenment. This is part one of a two part series. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today in a roundtable discussion. I guess we don't really have a table in front of us, but <laughs> theoretically, Google Hangouts is round in some imaginary space, and we're sitting around a, a round table and talking. Um, and I'm here today with uh, David Vago and Jake Davis. Uh, really good to have you fellows on the show, and uh, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to be here, Vince. Uh, I love these virtual uh, spaces. Yeah, it's, it's quite fun. Uh, we were just talking before the interview that, you know, this uh, medium has become much better in the last couple of years. And uh, I'm probably going to curse myself now. We're going to have all kinds of issues, but it's really nice. <laughs> what, what <did> you say? <laughs> it is really nice, though, to just be here and, and seeing each other and talking uh, across vast distances. I think the, uh, you know, the Buddhist contemplatives of yore with all of their psychic powers would still be um, probably overwhelmed by the, uh, the amazingness of this. Yeah, it's almost a, another form of this psychotechnology that we were talking about a little earlier. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So let me share a bit about your backgrounds before we jump into the main topic, which is uh, going to be exploring uh, whether or not a neuroscience of enlightenment makes sense. Um, and, you know, David Vago has been here on the show before. He spoke at the last Buddhist Geeks conference and is, um, you know, at, really at the forefront. I think both of you are at the forefront of this emerging field of contemplative science. David's been working on mapping the meditative mind. He's done a lot of collaboration with a uh, mindfulness teacher, Shinzen Young, and was a former research coordinator at the Mind and Life Institute. Jake Davis is a longtime practitioner. Um, he spent uh, several years uh, as a translator and monk in Burma and is currently focused, after coming back from the monastic life, uh, focusing on philosophy and cognitive science. He's specializing in philosophy of mind and ethics and so it's bringing a really interesting humanities and practice perspective. And both of you, I should mention, are longtime practitioners. And that's kind of the unique thing, I guess, about contemplative science is you've got you know, folks who are kind of trained in multiple disciplines um, and are you know, not just taking a third person, you know, um, objective kind of uh, approach to this stuff, but also the first person introspective um, you know, methods are, are part of what you're employing. So it's very interesting you know, to bring that, those two perspectives together. Yeah, I would I would just even add that that's the, probably one of the most critical laboratory settings in which we can get insight from. So that's that's where we start, right? We start from our own experience. Maybe the only thing to say there is I think that that's actually true, just underappreciated about science in general, maybe psychology in particular, is that people actually have to start from their own intuitions and their own experiences to generate um, hypotheses. Of course, they're informed by the background of the literature, but a lot of a lot of people's interests and their hunches and what they're moving on has is informed by their own experience and so um, it's just often underappreciated part of the methodology of science but actually really crucial to appreciate them. that's right and it, and it should also be uh, I think talked about very explicitly that it doesn't necessarily mean that the that because you're practicing meditation that you're going to be biased towards the benefits of it but you know you're trained as a scientist to be objective um, and that's what you know you do is you do objective work. Um, 
of course, there's always going to be your own insight that, that sort of informs your hypotheses, but you know, it doesn't necessarily mean, which is a common criticism, is that it's going to bias the way you think of your outcomes. So, of course, that could be a, a problem in science, and that's in any field of science, that uh, people's own uh, feelings about what they're studying will bias their interpretation of the data. But, you know, that as a scientist, you have to be objective, and that's what we're trained to do. Sure. So just being invested in, in a kind of a practice uh, and, you know, maybe even making your money from teaching it sometimes can certainly bias your perspective. There's also a way in which just training the mind to be equanimous and careful actually should decrease those kind of biases. In fact, one, one of my um, sort of pet theories about mindfulness practice in particular is that that's part of the function of it is precisely to uh, to decrease those kind of, of biases. I do think that it's important for us to take a critical perspective. And one thing I've been saying to people recently is precisely because there's so much hype, that's sort of what we've been calling the mindfulness phenomenon. There's so much hype around mindfulness in particular, you know, on the cover of time and so on. It's actually more important now to bring a really critical perspective. And I think that one thing that's great about what's happened with the paper that that Dave and I put out there is that it's really, it's generated some critique and discussion. And I think that that's, that's a lot of fun for both of us, I know, but also I think more importantly for the field is really important that there be this kind of, um, that there be this kind of critique going on. And that was really just a starting point for thinking about the E word for us. Um, you know, some of the reasons, uh, some of the sort of the, the, the dialogue that happens about or criticism that comes back and forth about whether we should even be thinking about a neuroscience of enlightenment. Is a neuroscientist even qualified to talk about it? And, you know, some of the criticism is no, <laughs> it should be anthropologists and uh, <laughs> philosophers uh, more than neuroscientists. So I think that neuroscientists certainly add a perspective and that you know, if anybody's going to start talking about it, that people who are immersed in this field and who are surrounded by the, the, the philosophers and the Buddhist scholars um, should be the ones to initiate the dialogue. So I'm happy we were, you know, one of the first people to sort of to really talk about it. You know, I think the idea of spirituality, you know, and the neuroscience of spirituality tried to push itself into mainstream neuroscience a few years ago, but really sort of failed at having a real strong uh, sort of empirical uh, backing behind of it. And, and, and we still, I think, fail to really come up with a way to operationalize spirituality in a way that's, um, you know, culturally meaningful. So I think just by continuing to have this discussion and starting right now um, with this paper that we can really um, think about it in a way that's not necessarily divorced from the soteriological context from which it originates. So we can okay. go back to this idea from the historical framework with, you know, Buddhist scholars like Jake and philosophers like Evan Thompson and and see what what are we drawing from from that context into this Buddhist modernism um, or sort of the contemporary mindfulness movement that people um, are claiming to have experiences that uh, may be associated with ideas of enlightenment. So. We need to at least uh, uh, start somewhere, and I think we're we're doing that, which is great. Yeah, and so you know this um, the article that you're talking about. Um, I'll mention the title, and it's it's uh, it's kind of it's kind of uh, geeky. Uh, can enlightenment be traced to specific neural correlates, cognition, or behavior? Question mark. No, 
and a qualified yes. So um, I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, in terms of titling, uh, journals like Frontier probably aren't you know, trying to create buzz headlines in the same way that um, you know, Huffington Post is. But, um, you know, it's really interesting for a couple of reasons. One, that you use the term enlightenment, like you said, and, and that's really unusual, I, I take it, to, to even use the E-word. Uh, you know, even calling it the E-word sort of says something in a, you know, in a journal like this. Um, why did you choose to do that? I mean, what's what's you, you mentioned a little bit, but could you say a little bit more about why you guys decided to um, you know to, to kind of th throw enlightenment in there instead of instead of trying to use some other terminology? I should just give a, a quick background. So the, the 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 paper came out in Frontiers of Psychology, Frontiers in Psychology, and it was a special um, edition of of uh, the journal that focused on consciousness and contemplative practice and non-dual states of awareness that um, was edited by Zoran Josipovich and Bernard Bars. At one point, Zoran approached me and said, hey, we should talk about whether there's a possibility for a neuroscience of enlightenment. And uh, I said, okay, that sounds great um, and interesting. I'm not sure if I can say much about it, but um, I was doing, I've been doing some work with uh, Shenzhen Young, as you mentioned, and you know he's writing a whole piece on the science of enlightenment, and not to devalue his opinion in any way, but I, I think that you know it's one side of and one perspective that is needed in this whole debate. But there needs to also be the varied perspectives that people like um, Jake bring, um, like a Buddhist scholar brings to the table, as well as philosophers and anthropologists. We need to have a more broader discussion about it, and. So that's when um, I asked Jake to join and, you know, he immediately was interested and, and Bernard Bars had a very, some interesting points. Maybe Jake, you can, you can talk a little bit about how, how Bernard Bars was a little bit critical of using the word enlightenment and, you know, very cautious about putting it into a, into a psych, psychological or cognitive framework. And that would, that was, you know, that was risky. Uh, yeah, so I, I can't recall precisely the you know word for word what what um, Bernie Barr's criticisms uh, were. He was actually dedic to the idea of you know at least raising the question, but I think rightly he was pointing out that for one thing the term enlightenment, as we pointed out in the article, is really a reflection of of his original um, sort of challenge that the term enlightenment is used all over the place in many different contexts to refer to very different things. So as a first pass, no, there can't be a science of enlightenment um, because first you have to get very specific about which cultural context, which tradition you're talking about. Um, and even there, there are huge challenges. But the first pass is that we have to talk about a very specific tradition before we're going to get any kind of traction at all. And so that, that kind of critique I think, as Dave was saying, you know, requires people who've thought a bit about the Buddhist studies end of things. And also, I actually identify more as a philosopher than as a Buddhist scholar, though I do have some background in both. Really thinking critically about these philosophical issues, one about the nature of experience and, and how it lines up with physical correlates, you know, neurobiological correlates at all. And then on the other hand, thinking about issues of value, because to me, enlightenment is really a value term. It's, you know, something like the most valuable experience. Maybe that's how we should take it when people talk about enlightenment experiences, at least a very valuable experience, right? So if we're talking about 
valuable experiences, there's a whole uh, discussion that goes on in philosophy and moral psychology and in ethics and what's called meta-ethics that pertains to you know, what, what it is to value something and how we could go about studying that at all scientifically or is it po not possible to study uh, these value questions at all from a scientific perspective. So all those, all those um, uh, perspectives seem really important given the kind of foundational questions, conceptual questions that um, Bars was raising. And I, I just want to add also that, you know, as this field focuses on trying to map the meditative mind um, to better understand basic mechanisms by which these practices are working, um, we also have to um, sort of put side by side, you know, the, the historical model of, of practice of the Dharma, really, and the more modern contemporary uh, mindfulness movement, which is mostly focused on MBSR, mindfulness-based stress re reduction. And you put those two side by side, and the first thing you see are two very different sort of goal states. One is for stress reduction, um, and the other one, really, the goal is enlightenment. And that's, I mean, it, in some contexts, you hear enlightenment as being a goal. It's not necessarily one that you, you sit down and begin practice for, but it is an end state um, that typically um, can manifest through the practices. And so you, we, we can argue about you know, some of the details associated with how, how much it really is uh, a goal in the practice. But if we just at least approach the concept um, as part of the practice, then we have to at least be able to examine it, put it on the table and say, let's talk about it instead of just keeping it in a black box and um, it's just saying it's there, but we don't know what it means. Um, you know, even though some people may experience it, um, we still don't want to talk about it. It's like a bad word. And then the, the question I think that that's most difficult is that it's hard to define and operationalize. Um, you know, if you ask your average Buddhist practitioner or people who claim to be Buddhist, you say, what is enlightenment? You know, the question, would you get an answer that's consistent amongst practitioners? And probably not, right? Um, you, know, you probably wouldn't. Uh, and, and, and that's a problem um, because, you know, people are trying to identify some of the states uh, that, the, that they're experiencing during their practice. Some people may claim to have a subjective experience that um, would declare uh, that it's enlightenment while experiencing it. And some people may say that it's uh, something that lasts, um, you know, longer than a fleeting moment. Um, it could be something that you would call an enlightened individual. So it could be more trait-like. We need to at least explore these experiences and whether or not they match the, the soteriological sort of, sort of way of thinking about it. So, you know, the, the context from which it originates or not. We are creating something, or at least we, we may be creating a, a new concept of enlightenment for the contemporary movement, but we need to identify what, what's consistent about these states. And just like we're trying to map, you know, the other aspects of meditation practice into, you know, neural correlates and substrates, we also want to put that on the map, enlightenment and, 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 and the associated phenomenological states or experiences that people have while practicing these meditation um, techniques. So I think that's one of the most critical points is that, you know, somebody may be out there to declare that they have a subjective mental state um, that was 
that they felt enlightened while experiencing it. And that's important. And we have to contextualize that. And the neural correlates are just one part of the story. So I don't think we should avoid uh, using neural or neuroscience techniques, but uh, I, I understand the criticism that it shouldn't be the only uh, tool that we use. Okay, interesting. So, um, you know, just taking a step back, I mean, part of what I'm hearing both of you guys talk about in some sense is, you know, when you're investigating this question of neuroscience of enlightenment, is this even possible? Part of what I hear is challenging is almost the difference between enlightenment in the singular and enlightenment as a plural type of situation. Like, you know, because the term enlightenment itself does seem to indicate like one thing, whereas what you guys are talking about, you know, if you ask many different people, you know, what, what their ideas are about enlightenment, or even many different people who think they're enlightened, what their experience of, of enlightenment, they're going to give different answers. So it sounds like it's a plural already, you know, clearly not a singular situation. What, any, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so, I mean, one thing to say is on the ground, clearly, people are making all sorts of claims. And um, so they're going to identify very different states and traits as enlightenment or enlightened you know, one one thing, just kind of thinking along the lines of what David was saying, it's not just that we're comparing the traditional model with the MBSR model. In fact, you know, there are hundreds and millions of traditional models. So right, we're right. comparing lots of models with actually lots of contemporary models. But say MBSR has a particular kind of um, dominance in, in the contemporary sphere, particularly in terms of scientific research on meditation. So there, absolutely, pluralism is part of the challenge. But for me, actually, what pluralism makes clear is a different kind of a challenge. It's a challenge about what's really valuable and what kind of states really are valuable or what kind of traits really are valuable. Uh, so basically, you know, when I hear somebody say, this is the enlightenment experience, I kind of translate it into this is a really valuable experience. You know, we've, we talked in the paper a little bit that you know the the notion of enlightenment isn't so so native isn't so widely used in the buddhist traditions the bodhi or awakening is is a more widely used kind of metaphor and term yep. but whatever term you want to use essentially to my mind it's a value judgment so you wouldn't expect if you were to survey people well what's the most what's the right way to live you wouldn't expect that they're in the world you wouldn't expect that people from very di different cultures are going to agree on that. And so I think it's similar with enlightenment. What's the most valuable experience? Well, they disagree about that, absolutely. And then what I'm interested in, sort of as a, as a philosopher, and from this question of foundations of ethical theory, foundations of answers to the question, how should we live? I'm interested in, is there an answer to that? Is there an answer to what the most kind of valuable state is or what the most kind of valuable trait is to have as a human being? Is there an answer to these questions, to some questions about how we ought to be and how we ought to live? Um, and I think those are really the questions, the deeper questions that are raised by the specter of pluralism, in particular about the case of enlightenment, but it's actually a much more general question about value. It is, yeah, and I, I would also add, you know, I mentioned this earlier too, but John Bervecki, the, the guy at uh, University of Toronto, talks about this idea of psychotechnology, uh, basically an information processing tool designed for the mind to enhance its performance in some way. And I like using this term also in reference to mindfulness and the meditation practices that are associated with mindfulness, because what we're trying to do is essentially uh, enhance 
the performance of the mind to, to learn the wisdom necessary to survive and flourish as a human being. And what does that mean? And it's sort of talking specifically to what Jake is referring to as sort of these value judgments of what, what's good for a human being, what, what's really helping to enhance performance of the mind an ability to, I, I created this framework of self-awareness, self-regulation and self and self-transcendence as a way to sort of frame the benefits of doing these practices of what it can be to sustain a, a healthy mind, to be a flourishing human being. And at some level, all these elements of learning how to be meta aware, how to be, how to regulate oneself and how to transcend one's uh, needs and wants of the self to improve uh, pro-social skills like empathy and theory of mind are all components of a flourishing human being uh, or this psychotechnology. And so enlightenment may just be sort of a, a sort of emergent property of what happens when you have all of these uh, ducks in a row and you're flourishing, just like, you know, Matthew Ricard made, took the metaphor and said, um, you know, we all understand what it, what it, what a flourishing plant looks like. When you look at a plant and you see it's nice and green and doesn't, you know, doesn't have little water spots or dead leaves, that's a flourishing plant. But what does it look like to, to be a flourishing human being? Is it easy to, to see or do we have to develop tools to, to better understand them in objective ways aside from the subjective reports? Because people could say that they're enlightened, of course. You know, I remember having lots of conversations with, with the Mormons, uh, for example, when I was in Utah and, you know, their, their claims of uh, communication with, with uh, God. And, and in any case, I said, well, what if, what if I said I had a, a communication with God when I was up on the uh, Alta ski area? And uh, there was no way to deny that. So, of course, if you say that you have a subjective experience of enlightenment, you can't argue with that. But we can qualitatively try to describe it and then see if we can come up with other objective tools like neuroscience to uh, measure them and see if there's something consistent. And just to expand on that last point, we have to at least agree with the assumption that uh, neuroscience or that there's some worth and utility in using neuroimaging to find correlates or substrates of human experience. It doesn't matter whether it's depression or imagining movements of ba ballet, which is one of the, the, the examples that Evan gave, um, or enlightenment. We just need to at least agree that there's an assumption that, that there's utility in using that as a tool. And if so, then we can move forward and create a biobehavioral description of what we mean by enlightenment in this contemporary field. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and Pragmatic Dharma Provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. 
After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.